for the kids and you. Andy Biff and Sony Island. What up? This is Open Mike Eagle. Welcome to another episode of my interview podcast, Secret Skin. I'm reporting to you live, but in the past, from a, a hotel room in St. Louis. I'm here for a show. We got a show tomorrow night. It's Wednesday, the 6th, I think. Same day this pod comes out. Got a show in St. Louis tonight. I'm on tour with Video Dave and the band AJJ. We've played Phoenix and Albuquerque and Tulsa and Little Rock and um, in Memphis. And we got St. Louis, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Omaha, Nebraska after this. If you're in one of those places, come say hi. I've already met quite a few people that have come up at these shows and whispered the secret word so they could learn the secret handshake of secret skin. Okay, now for your, those of you who need a refresher, who might be coming to one of these shows and are interested in this secret information, you have to walk up to me and whisper the word Pomplamoose. Okay, Pomplamoose. We've had some some challenged pronunciations out here at these shows. Great effort, wonderful intentions, but some struggle, struggle with the pronunciation. Pomplamoose. Okay, you can do it. Pomplamoose. Um. And you say that to me, I will take you to the side and teach you the secret handshake that you can't show anybody. Okay. Welcome to Secret Skin. This is um, episode five of the new season, episode 62 overall. And in this episode, we're speaking with Blueprint, underground hip hop legend out of Columbus, Ohio. Him and Logic do a podcast on this network, the Stony Island Audio Network. Their, their podcast is called Super Duty Tough Work. And their whole mission, their whole reason for being over there is to give away the game for free. That's all they do every week. Like, it's almost infuriating. You know how hard it is to get game? You know how hard it is to get experience points in this industry, especially uh, on the indie side? And he's been at it for so long, has collected so many wonderful experiences and habits in knowledge and insight and they share it every week they teach you how to have an indie career uh, and this it's excellent programming that you should tune into we talk about the podcast on the show we talk about his past um being with groups like soul position uh historic coming out of columbus and scribble jam and all that wonderful wonderful golden age golden era hip-hop backpackery goodness you could expect from a conversation between me and him who came up very similar ways but in different parts of the world um always great to talk to print i'm in a hotel room and i'm tired i'm on tour come see a show it's been great um shout out to the host Tony island audio network you can support the show by doing uh what i politely ask you to do in sponsorship messages when we give out codes for stuff like dad grass or beat stars you know use that stuff use that stuff it helps the show also i have a patreon patreon.com slash open mic eagle where you get all sorts of uh background insider uh knowledge i posted a, a exclusive playlist playlist i made in there yesterday um informing you the songs that could help you get into they might be giants this is the kind of services i do for for my secret club over there in patreon in fact i do an entirely exclusive podcast just for my patrons 
called the Hella Personal Podcast. So if you like the idea of me talking, it's a great place to hear more of that. I'm Open Mike Eagle. I'm on tour. We're talking the blueprint in this episode. This is Secret Skin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, here we are in a place to be privileged, fortunate to be getting into it with uh, an underground legend. You like that word, legend? It's always weird, man. It's always it's gotta be right. <laughs> you know, it's like when people start calling you that. You like, damn. Yeah. How long has it been? How long you gotta be doing this <laughs> to be a legend? Damn. I mean, I've had some people call me that, and I'm like, oh no. Legend is cold for year old. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's there's old coded into yeah. the word legend. Yeah, ain't no young legends. <laughs> That's true. That's true. There's no young legends. Oh, man. I'm about to fully confront whoever the next person that says that to me is. Man, Blueprint. Mr. Prant Matic, man. The, the man of so many hats. The creative mastermind been really looking forward to to talking to you and having you on the program there's so many interesting things you say mm. every week uh on your own show and when you know you're on other shows and and I've been so excited to like pull on some of these threads but um I want to start with you from your beginning because Columbus is an interesting place especially its connection to indie hip-hop, underground hip-hop. When I'm talking to LP about it for what had happened was when we get to, you know, Columbus, it's really interesting how, you know, there's a fully functioning scene there in New York and, like, the next wave is, like, a bunch of cats from Columbus. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. from your perspective, you know, being being a part of that, I'd love to get, you know, your thoughts on what it is that made or maybe continues to make Columbus such an interesting place. In my opinion, it was like there was a uh, a real intense competitiveness here when I first started observing the scene in Columbus. So, like the first time I really paid attention to Columbus hip hop was maybe '95, and that was because there was this thing going on called the uh, Groove Shack, and somehow it was this record store called the Groove Shack that had like a a weekly show on public access and it was just their open mic and cats were just getting at it. It was just super intense. So like people would turn on public access and it'd be this live feed of all these rappers just battling. So it was like freestyle battles every week? Freestyle battles okay. every week. And wow. it would be one mic and dudes just standing around. Just You know how it was back in the yeah. day. Yeah. Intense. So you wouldn't even go unless you was prepared to... Right. I started hearing about it. And people were like, yo, the Groove Shack. You heard this thing? You've seen it? People see it on TV. So it started drawing some attention and all the dopest rappers started going up there. Are you rhyming already by that point? I had just started probably rhyming maybe a year or two before then. You know what? I probably just started rapping. I was definitely into doing beats, but I wasn't really uh, recording. I wasn't recording yet. And so uh, me and my crew, we were like, hey, man, have, have y'all been? No one had been. 
I was in college. I was like, I'm going to go and check this shit out next time I'm home visiting my family. I went to college in a city about 40 miles away. I went to college in Springfield, Ohio. And so I drove home on probably every other weekend just to see the family. So I was like, next time I'm going to stop by this Groove Shack thing. And I went there and I missed it the first time. But but what I, I I didn't get to see anything inside. But after it was over, I was outside and it was just like 30 rappers, 40 rappers on the sidewalk ciphering and battling. The first cat I saw was copyright. He was like 15, battling like a 30-year-old dude. Crushed him. I possess what you stupid motherfuckers need to get. If it ain't megahertz or weatherman, it's a piece of shit. The mic's the worst solution to evenness, cause you'll go through twice the persecution Jesus did. I'll step on stage in a black cape with a whack rhyme about your fat date and how I met your mommy on the chat line. This fool Nelson will put you in the fool Nelson. And then Camus was there. I saw Camus. I was like, okay, these two young dudes are crazy. Okay, get on the floor. I have a strange theory that only insane him and mudslingers clutch their necks, mic with nub fingers. Your heart cold, your smart flow with shows flaws. Leave you on the middle of a flaming asteroid with the ends of your forms looking like some fucking cold floor. Is this scene, I mean, you mentioned in copyright and Camus already, so that means there's some diversity already happening. Was it? Like, were there a lot of different kinds of people? No, no, no. Copyright was like literally the only white dude there rapping, which is how he, I think he kind of ended up being so dope was because if you was white and you was rapping in that era, you had to be nasty. You had to be, yeah. You had to be crazy (laughs) with it. Because you was going to get called every night. You was going to get tested. (laughs) (laughs) We was going to take out all our societal frustrations. And so Copy was that guy, you know what I mean? For a while. He was a teenager, but he knew. You know, he went to like the public schools and he hang around brothers all the time. So he knew what it was. But that is kind of how we ended up that way. Always being a dude who was always getting tested. And then Camus, and I was just seeing all these other dudes from these crews. And then I learned from that, I learned about this thing called the Columbus Expo, which was like a yearly event. But it was like Columbus had its own version of Scribble Jam. So we had this thing called the Columbus Expo. And the Expo was basically like B-Boy Battle. DJ battle, MC battle. Does this predate Scribble Jam? Yes, it does. Okay, okay. Yeah, because Scribble started, I think, in 97. Expo started in 94, 95. Like, it was, and you know, you'd you'd go to the Expo. So it was like the one event that every MC from Columbus, every act really looked, because it was pre-Scribble. you go there, it'd be 800,000 people there. Wow. How big is Columbus? Uh, I think it's like maybe a million, million five. Million, it's definitely over a million population, you know. It's pretty big, but it's like uh and so you know also, you know, and that's not even counting like the Ohio State University population, which is probably another three hundred thousand people. You know what I'm saying? So that event was also kind of a part of it. So you got these these things, you got this open mic, super competitive thing, you got like this yearly event. And you got all these B-boys and it's this funnel system where all these heads who are going to Ohio State are coming into the scene from places like Cleveland, Cincinnati. They're participating. There's crews. It's bringing all these this energy together. But it was super duper competitive. And that was my first sighting. And, and even the cats performing. It wasn't a lot of crews performing. But the cats who were performing were dope already. You know, it was a crew called Spirit. They were the first guys I ever saw play a rap show. Like, if you imagine, like, leaders of the new school, how dope they were at performing, this is how Spirit was in Columbus on the local level. They had that level of just, like, energy. You know, like, the you know, the Wu-Tang is not even the dopest group, you know what I'm saying, performing. Almost like like living legends, you know what I mean? 
that kind of group energy. Uh, except Spirit, they were like dancers too. Okay. Okay. So they so could, live, there was like some, yeah, yeah you know, like uh, I've heard like maybe like the far side used to be dancer too, right? So abstract tribe unique. Yeah. Yeah. Dances, yeah. So they would do all, it was kind of like our version of that. Gotcha. And they, but they were the pioneering crew. And so I think a lot of that stuff kind of translated. And then like the, when the Groove Shack thing died, other spots popped up. And then the other spot that popped up was uh, DJ Prism had a spot, Bernie's, a few years later. And then that became like the Sunday night thing, the biggest thing in Columbus Sunday nights. And then everybody went there. We didn't have no, we couldn't even get venues at this point. You know, so we weren't able to get real venues in Columbus until maybe 2002. Mm, okay. After Soul Position. When Soul Position came out, that's when we could take, we could move down the street now. Because we were in this shithole Bernie's Club in this basement of a spot, which was, you know, 100 capacity. All the Columbus energy was in there. Nobody played headlining shows because none of the venues believed in our shit yet. Even though we saw this shit cracking, we saw the expo, this is pre-script, we knew that it was some nasty MCs. We were all recording, uh, Prism's crew was recording. By then, the megahertz went to New York, got on Fondalum. So world premiere in Columbus was just like the biggest fucking song. That was a big moment. Yeah, that was big. You put that song on, knew the words of that shit front to back. It was like the first song people all knew. We don't need gimmicks. Whack ones still ride the bills till they exceed the speed limits. When it's time to rhyme... Did you have a relationship with them? Because I'm assuming at some point in this is when you, you get fully embedded into the scene, you start battling, you're making music. But what's, what's your relationship with Megahertz at the time? So like, the weird thing about us was like, me and Elogic and all my crew were originally from Columbus. But me and Elogic didn't start doing music until he moved to Cincinnati and I had moved to Cincinnati. So I was in Cincinnati working. He went to University of Cincinnati. That's when he and I linked up because we met at the expo. We started doing music there. The rest of our crew was still in Columbus, but we were the kind of the lead guy. So we were kind of steering the thing from Cincinnati. So we were doing stuff in Cincinnati and Columbus at the time. Now, in Columbus, the, my link with Megahertz came through RJ. RJ D2. I didn't know Camus. I didn't know copyright. Obviously, they were like legends. <laughs> you know, we were joking about the legend thing, but they were young legends. They were young legends at that time. So it was just, you know, we listened. We were fans of Megahertz. Like when you would see the Megahertz and you would see them rhyme and you would see them out battling, it was like, yo, those are the nastiest rappers in Columbus. That was the bar. And they were young dudes. You were like, and they had older guys who mentored this cat. The intellect mentored them on the beats. And so there was a guy named uh, Greg who was in a crew called Brothers Grimm. I went to college with his brothers. It was two brothers and then another brother. And uh, their brother brought me their tape up and I played it on my radio show. I had a radio show in college, like 10 to 2 underground rap mix show. So that's just the beginning of the radio voice, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so I'll be on Friday nights in the two mix show playing company flow and natural resources and all this stuff at the same time. And so that's kind of what I, how I started meeting cats. I met a logic because I was booking him at this yearly event I did at my college. And then I'm, and then we went on to Cincinnati together. And then I'm, I met uh, the brothers Grimcat because I went to school with their brother and I met them. And, and that's kind of how I really learned who was who in Columbus through some cats who were already doing it. But when RJ moved back, I think RJ was living in the Bay for a while. He moved back to Columbus, I think in 99 or 98. By then, Megahertz had already put out world premiere and they were, they were, he, but then he moved back. So like he was working with them. He was just, he was a DJ, but 
he was uh, coming to his own as, as a producer as well. So our touring DJ was a guy named DJ True Skills. DJ True Skills in Columbus was kind of like the bridge to everybody. He's who basically got the megahertz to New York to meet Bobito. He's basically who, he was our first touring DJ. He had the first record store in Columbus that sold underground hip hop. Nobody would carry our records. He had a, he was in a reggae shop. It was called Thieves World. And he had this corner in this reggae record shop where it would just be all the latest dopest 12 inches in underground tapes. And so that became the hangout spot. He became our first touring DJ. He, he rolled with us when we started playing shows. And then he was a guy who was like, yo, you met RJ yet? I was like, nah, who's RJ? He was like, RJ in the megahertz, but he'd been in the Bay for some years. He just moved back. And I was playing True Skills, some of the weird instrumental shit I was working on back then. And he was like, you got to meet RJ. Y'all got to, y'all got to, because y'all the only people doing this weird instrumental shit. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so next time I came home, he took me to RJ's house. And me and RJ sat around and RJ played me what was going to be Dead Ringer. And I played him my chamber music record. Wow. This was all pre Def Jux. This was all pre-Rhymes. This was like maybe 97 to 98, maybe 98. Uh, we were doing this. Yeah, man, that's kind of how my connection came with RJ. But I never had a relationship with Camus or a friendship with Camus and Pete or copyright because it was we we aren't enemies or anything like that. We just we we admired them. We just weren't tight like that. And plus, they were significantly younger than us. You know what I mean? I think it's from the outside looking in. You look at the influx and and how y'all did end up being a bridge between Rhyme Sayers and Def Jux. And you see the Columbus and you think, okay, they must have all been kicking it. But inside of the scene, there's so much diversity that that's why, you know, I wanted to draw the individual lines. It's funny um, hearing you tell the story because what it one thing it reminds me of in, in the story of independent underground skill-based hip-hop, there's this really important factor of like location. You know, so the different mm -hmm. spots yeah. of Groove Shack to Bernie's and then, you know, your man's um, store locations are so uh important and you know i wanted to get your perspective on the importance of scribble jam yeah a scribble jam to me and i you know i'm thankful because you know i moved i think they started in 97 i moved to cincinnati summer of 97 and so i think i missed the first real one where they had eminem battling juice and all of that i think i had just moved down there at that time and i didn't you know, I just started working, so I didn't know about it and go. The next year, you know, they were going to have it. And uh, our goal at that point was just to get on everything. Especially, and, and for us, we knew because we had the expo in our minds. We're like, we know that these yearly hip hop things are, you got to be on They're, they're so critical. That's, when, that's yeah. when I was, yeah, I was like, I'm going to battle on it. Mm -hmm. We getting merch tables. Right. We putting out records. <laughs> Y'all knew how to do it. Exactly. Yeah, we knew yeah. from the expo. We're going to have, you know, we're going to be posted up the whole weekend and the whole crew knew. But just seeing the Scribble Jam, to me, the Scribble Jam was kind of like, it was finally shining a light on what we were doing all year round that people didn't know. So like... The first, I think I got in the 2000 or 2001, I think it was the 2000 Scribble Jam battle. That was the first battle. That was really my first organized battle where it was like a tournament. Everybody was there. I was battling. I was just street battling, cypher battling. You know what I mean? At Bernie's, it was like shit. We would battle every week because it would be dudes who came down there and tried to pop shit because they didn't think Columbus dudes could, could go. 
And so there was times at Bernie's, I took motherfuckers outside. They be talking shit. I'm like, okay, the light's about to come on. I'm about to serve you, you, and you outside. I see y'all out there in five minutes. You had and, to defend the turf. Yeah. Like, y'all don't come in here disrespecting Columbus. Motherfuckers would lie. This is what they would do, which is you'll find funny. Dudes would come to Columbus and lie and say that they was part of Project Blow. Whoa. Okay. Whoa. Cali dudes who was never shit in Project Blow, thinking that we didn't know who the fuck was who. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. And then we would have to eat them up. We're like, y'all not, y'all not part of fucking blow. Y'all trash. Wow. We know who AC alone is. We know fucking now y'all not them. That's funny, man. That makes my blood run cold, man. I just think about like if somebody tried to pull that like in the internet era and it got around, like that person would be seriously hurt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, dudes alive. But like, but but like. The stuff we were doing at Bernie's with the, the, the weekly shows and, and uh, the, the open mics and the battle and the competitive nature there to the expo, to the scribble jam, all of us were just looking at like, yo, we finally get to show what we doing here every week anyway, because at the same time, Cincinnati had a weekly at a spot called Top Cats. That was every Wednesday night. It was pretty much just like Bernie's in Columbus. Bernie's was Sundays. Top Cats in Wednesday was on Wednesdays in Cincinnati. There was also one on Monday night in Dayton, a weekly. Mm. So what we started doing, we it was a circuit for us. We could, we could do the loop. We would do the loop. We twice a year we play that tour. We hit Sundays and we fill it in with maybe a a Toledo or Cleveland, and we would play those weeklies. And we and since I lived in Cincinnati, my whole crew was from Columbus. We were plugging into all of them. So when Scribble Jam came around, it was like, hey, man, y'all got to let us, we got to get on this shit. And uh, to me, I think it was important because I didn't know that there were crews like us in every city until I met Adam's family. Mm-hmm. So when I met Adam, Cryptic, I mean, Cryptic met, I think, on the ATAC message boards. Remember ATAC? Do you sell the tapes? I don't, I'll tell you, I might have okay. missed that. One. It was ATAC. I didn't really get on message boards to so like fill the flavor. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this was yeah. free fill the flavor. This was yeah. like ATAC was right there. It was a, all they did was sell underground tapes, West Coast tapes. It was some white cat out, and it was called ATAG.com. He would sell Project Blow and all these crazy, just, you know, tapes and shit. And and first time I got a bus driver tape, it was off of there and shit. And um, that cat had some message boards. This is pre-hip-hop infinity, pre-fill of flavor. And so one day I was on there talking to to cats, and like, I remember Cryptic from Adam's family, they just dropped it, the persecution of hip-hop or whatever. And I heard something, we were building on that. And then we just became friends. Meeting him and having him introduce me to the whole Adams family crew, and then me introducing to all the waitlist, you know, and, and then us all just becoming just immediate friends. That shit was the first time I saw, like, yo, it's crews like us in every city. This is a whole thing. It's not just us. And so there's a whole network of guys who are doing what we're doing everywhere. And the Scribble Jam to me brung all that energy together. Right. Everybody met everybody. Everybody battled everybody, got experience, made connections Yep. from there. Yeah, because you got to, because too, the thing I think some people forget is like, this shit wasn't no genre. It wasn't no lane prior to these bigger things popping up. We was just rapping and the people would be like, oh yeah, y'all, y'all underground. It was an insult. It was pejorative. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> like they would treat you like you wasn't. You didn't have no aspiration. Like, oh, they all don't want to get signed. Y'all make it that underground shit, you know? Right, because at that time, it wasn't seen as a viable career to do anything except rap on, like, the highest mainstream level. <laughs> yep, yep. 
so this is becoming a business. You're watching it happen, and you and you're in it. Mm-hmm. And you and RJ linking up as soul position is is one of those early kind of big moments, especially if you look at what the big labels would be from that time. You look at RSC, you look at Def Jux, you know, soul positions very early on in that. How did that feel for you? You mentioned that, you know, you started to be able to do real shows and real clubs after that. Yeah. That came out. But what was it like having a project be out in such an official manner at that time? Uh it was weird. I don't think I understood it. I don't think I understood how big soul position was. And you know, I, I tell a story about like, because, you know, we was all on the message boards, mixing it up with people. And one day you just a dude with a tape. And the next thing you know, you blew from soul position. You're on rhyme stairs. That means something bigger. And I remember I, I was, I tell a story about one day I was like, somebody, I put out my weight room record. It was after that soul position EP. And somebody was like, ah, gosh, who's the other guy that was in loot pack with Mad Lit? Wild Child. And I was on undergroundhiphop.com's forum. Like, man, I shouldn't have been there. You know, we was just... I, I used to hang out on, on that forum too. It's, <laughs> it was, it's a terrible place. Yeah. I used to hang out there. Yeah. Too many hours was wasted on there. And somebody was like, don't buy that Blueprint record. Buy the Wild Child record or whatever dude's name, Jack's record from the Loot Pack. He got a new solo. His shit's better. And I was like, no, the fuck it ain't. My record is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Then it just ended up turning into this thing where then it was me against Mad Lib and people are like, and then ultimately somebody told Peanut Butter Wolf and Peanut Butter Wolf had RJ staying at his house when RJ was on tour and Peanut Butter Wolf asked RJ, what's up with Blueprint this and uh, Mad Lib like that? And RJ's just in a in a fucked up position. He's in a bind. <laughs> Sadiq Rhinestairs calls and he's like, Print, man, uh, I just gotta tell you, man, these guys are your peers now. Wow. Cause I was like, yo, I bought the loot pack record. I I own I got I got I bought all these dudes' records. I'm just saying, I know that they can't outrap me. Like, but I still fans of theirs. You know what I mean? Like, but he's like, no, they're your peers now. You can't be talking like this online. It was fucking weird. The first time I saw Slug signing autographs, I was like, what the fuck is going on here, man? He wasn't even playing that show. Me and Idea had a show in Chicago. He was working merch for Idea. And people was asking him. He was signing autographs from beginning to the end of that show. And I remember looking at my homies. We was like, yo, is this what this underground shit is about to be? This is crazy. It's 500, 600 people here. (laughs) <laughs> How long did it take for you to embrace that change? Because it's one thing to hear it, right? Like you're no longer just in this community as a as a participant and a consumer. You you now have a different position. You know, no pun intended. How long did it take for you to embrace that? Man, I think I still struggle with that sometimes. <laughs> that's real. That's you know, real. That that's real as hell. Yeah, it's it's. I always say this. Like I, I didn't choose this shit. I feel like the game chose me to some extent. I was already doing some professional shit. I never was a guy who grew up rapping. I never was like, I want to be a rapper. I just followed things and went with the flow very well and followed my passions. So I always was making beats because I didn't have nothing else to do. I loved it. It helped me kind of go through some shit I was going through with dealing with losses in my family, being able to dive into beat making and making music. So the whole fame thing to me was always weird. It's always going to be some shit where it's like, 
damn, you really can't speak your mind. You really can't say exactly what you're thinking. There's a price that comes with being known now, and you have to accept this. Because if you don't accept this, you're going to destroy this thing that you've created and, you know, trying to be like everybody else. You're not like everybody else. Admit it. Move accordingly. And there's times even now. I'm better at it now. You know, I, I watch it a lot more now. But there's still always a part of me that's, that feels like I don't know if I was cut out for fame. Wow. Real quick back to this era, though. Like I said previously, like soul position was you know, kind of uniquely positioned in being kind of the link between Rhyme Sayers and Def Chucks, two of the bigger collective slash record labels at that time. You seem to feel more at home with Rhyme Sayers, at least in terms of how the business side looked, you know, outward facing, right? But I'm wondering just with your experience, did you, was it more comfortable or did you ever consider going to Def Chucks side since you had, you know, roots and connections over there too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I shopped. The 1988 record to Jux and Sayers. I had a deal on the table from from Def Jux for that album. Played it both sides against the middle. <laughs> you see it. Hey, you know, that's what it is. You know, game recognized game. You know how we do. But yeah, at, at those days, that's what we would do. We say, hey man, we got this thing. Y'all interested in it? Because you know, Jux actually had technically the first uh, Soul Position song in Final Frontier. So they were hearing the same demos that Rhyme Sayers was hearing. But Rhyme Sayers got on that first. Oh, okay. Rhyme Sayers was like, yo, we, we, want, we want this record. So we went with that. And then I also was, at the time, I was like, I didn't want, I mean, but Jux was interested in Soul Position as well. But at the time, I was like, I don't want all of my eggs in that basket. You know, so I was like, we're going to take, you, you go over there, RJ. We're going to take the Soul Position thing. And get at the rhyme sayers, you know, and I'm already cool. You know, I'm, I'm running with Slug and Idea and Sadiq anyway. I met L, I knew L, but I didn't have no real relationship with um, Amici, you know, who did a lot of the business shit, his partner. So, you know, me and Amici weren't, didn't really have that big of a relation, not like me and Sadiq did. Me and Sadiq, due to me running weightless every day, um, Sadiq running rhyme sayers every day, I probably talked to Sadiq back then. Once or twice a week, just on business shit, just like, yo, what distributors you're promoting our artists, us promoting a logic, them promoting, you know, idea. We're, we're, we're talking and shit, resources. They had the fifth element store. We're selling products to them. So we had this business relationship already where I felt really comfortable dealing with rhyme sayers for that soul position shit. So that went there. But then when it came time for 88, I shouted to both of them. I was like, hey, you know, Jux was like, we need this record. I was like, all right, well, look, Rhyme says, if y'all can match or beat this deal, then, mm-hmm. then the rest is history. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, so that's that's how I ended up there. But it wasn't, but yeah, I had so many good friends on both. Like, me and Aesop were tight. You know what I mean? The whole, obviously with the Adams Family thing, and we're seeing like uh, Vast and Voidal turning a Cannibal Ox, who, who, and we had we heard like Metal Gear, the first song they ever did. We had that shit as soon as it was recorded. Check these two cats dip down in Metal Gear, and words from their faces echo. That's Metal Swish, starving but happy, bombers of stealth who never cried on yellow brick roads until they found themselves and since then. We had that shit in like was it ninety six, ninety seven, or some shit like that. Man, we've been at that. So we was like, when is this shit going to come out? 
who the hell's meddling? The way Bortles rhyming, we're like, this is insane. But yeah. And we're like, LP in it. And so they're like, no, uh, they Ox just got signed to Jets. We're like, hell yeah. So like weightless and like the Columbus shit, we became kind of like a, I call it like a feeder to, to Jux and Rhymesayers. Like all this Columbus talent was just boom, RJ to, to there, uh, you know, copyright to Eats and Converse, Blueprint to here, RJ to Soul Position. It's like, we're just feeding all this shit. I never really played no favorites back then. I just went to where I thought like, who do I see? Well, one, I didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket. And two, that's which is just a smart lesson for everybody. If you have if you have the options not to have all of your business tangled up with one entity, it's really good to diversify. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you you've dealt with different labels. So you know, like those times it's like, even though it, it's nothing personal against the label, right? Cause like Jux was doing some incredible music at that time. But then you, you know, if you're doing that, then all of your projects are in a pipeline. You know, and and you know, you got to wait on this to happen, and for that to happen, and for this person to come out and that person to come out. Where if you have things on different labels, and you're not playing this waiting game and this one carousel of 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 what can come out and advance your career, you know. But that's you know that's super duty tough work type type talk right there. That's <laughs> that's why y'all got a Pete Prince podcast. It's game every week, free game every week. So you know, we're talking about a scene that kind of starts. With Scribble Jam, and you know, if you listen to all the connections that you're making right now between all the labels and all of these cast from Columbus and cast from New York and cast from Minneapolis that are all working together, at some point that scene kind of ends. And I was curious from your perspective, like, do you know, like, when, like when that was? And, it, and of course, it's not like a specific event or anything, but. Just if if you look at Scribble Jam as a start, like when do you think like the end of that era is? To me, I think that era probably ends around 08, 07. You know what I mean? Like I think that's when like it was there was a lot of factors in it. You know, it was I, one of it was like when Scribble Jam started, they were like the only summer event, you know. And then all of a sudden these just summer tours, summer hip hop specific events started popping up. Rock the Bells type stuff or Yep, okay. Rock the Bells type stuff, uh pay dues type stuff. Um, all these like festivals like um like the pitchforks and these things like that that didn't used to fuck with hip hop. They fucking with hip hop heavy by 07, you know, 08. All of a sudden Scribble I started having a harder time booking artists that they could book for the same money. Because the rates exactly like those those rates are now being pushed higher by these big festivals that are yeah yeah hiring all this talent you know you know oh eight was also like the the housing the housing uh, crisis yeah bubble burst and so I think economically it was a lot going on right then oh eight I look at it like a whole different era like if you made it past oh eight then you made it to sixteen but you know what I mean <laughs> but a lot of cats went back to work in oh eight. Who was fucking with the music heavy because it just got so real. Um, you also had like chain stores failing. Mm-hmm. Yep, Sam Goodies right. and them is is out of here. All these big media play out of here. So retail. Um, retail's yeah. failing. 08 is when they saying vinyl is dead in 08. Right, because vinyl hadn't even come back. Hadn't yet. come so back. Right yet. now you got you got CDs that are falling off a cliff rapidly. Yep. And there's no vinyl to really even cover the losses at that point, and everything is kind of a digital. Yeah. So that means the distributors who used to carry our records, they going out of, they falling off left and right. 
you know, because we would deal with, directly with distributors back then. And, you know, every year somebody else was gone. Like all the, the one stops we dealt with, maybe two or three Ohio only one stops. And one stops are basically like hubs for distribution of music back in the day. Right. They were like where you where you take your product to get it properly pressed up and placed in retail stores all around the state. Yep. And so we had one or two really good one stops in Ohio. They were gone by 08. The distribution game starts changing. Uh, people who we sold records through in 08. Um, why y'all are trying to order three hundred more records? Y'all didn't pay us. You didn't pay last. us for the first. <laughs> <laughs> That's not gonna work. They like, sorry, man, it's tough right now. Can we just get three hundred more records? We're like, nah, man. <laughs> Right, that's, this ain't that's, it. That's not how math works at all. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> like I, because I was like, "Yo, just send us back the first three hundred. They like, we can't. They sold. We're like, oh shit. Well, then that means <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you gotta pay me. Oh, so like, man. oh, it was weird. And then, and then you couple that with like the the shift in the media, and that was a big factor. Like this is when the media went from you know underground shit is fire to dip set. I had a question about that too, because I heard you talk about that on Can't Knock the Shuffle. And you had some really interesting points about how that changed. And I guess, man, you were in a, you were in a position to really feel that, right? Because yeah. these, these writers that were championing your stuff suddenly, suddenly turned. So operationally for you, at that time, are you using PR? To try to get stuff pushed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had publicists every every record up until about oh wait. That's when I was like, I had to start taking a break from it because you know, I mean, paying fifteen hundred bucks a month for somebody back then, and the press is shitting on you. You might be like, ah, this got to change. So that's when I started changing the business model. To me, oh seven, oh eight, when I started seeing it shifting, that's when I started thinking about the whole direct to fan approach. And so right around 07, 08, that's when I was like, you know what? I think that this retail is dead. And I, and I was like, okay, well, what does this look like in 10 years if we, don't, if we can't sell to these stores who are selling, the stores are selling our product, distributors want more, but we can't get paid because all these losses they're taking all over the place. Why are we selling directly to them? And I started thinking to myself, well, the future of this stuff is direct. I saw it coming. And so that's when I did like the Blueprint versus Funkadelic EP. And then I did the Blueprint Who. Those were the first two records I ever did. I didn't sell to no stores, to no distributors. Sold them strictly on our website and free to download. And, you know, I haven't heard the Blueprint versus Funkadelic, but what that brings to mind to me is that, okay, so you're probably sampling some Funkadelic stuff, which if mm -hmm. you were selling through traditional retail, you would not be able to do. <laughs> no. So no. you're so in in this new way of selling your music to fans, you're also able to take advantage of skirting around all of that usual business stuff and being able to do some different stuff creatively as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And, and yeah, it helped me do that as well. But it was just a test. And you know, we would talk about within the crew. It's like, yo, this is where I think this shit is going. I think that we're not going to be able to rely on retail or press in the future. But I think what we have to do is just start working on investing in this in our website, investing in our maintaining our mailing list, investing in just having products and going directly to fans. And maybe we don't make what we'd have made, or maybe we don't sell what we would have sold, you know, going through all these distributors, but maybe we can make more if we go direct. 
Because you get a bigger percentage too. Bigger percentage. Nobody. And that was the first projects I ever did where there was no middleman. Right. And I was that's like, a, yo, this is the future. That's a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh shit. This is what I gotta do. Let's go. You know. One thing I wanted to touch on is a little bit of a tricky subject, but I've heard you mention stuff around this topic before. So, you know, I when I think about that era. And this is to go back into it a little bit, even though we just described the end of it. You have the unique distinction of being one of the few successful black rappers in that space. Yes. You know, we all generally think of rap as black music, but I think when you think about that indie era, that classic era, uh, it wasn't necessarily like that. It wasn't. It wasn't super diverse then. It was a lot of white acts. And I wonder what that experience was like for you at that time. Uh, it, it was it was kind of weird, but it, I, you know what I actually think, man? I think my experience in corporate America kind of prepared me for that. Because, like, I mean, I had worked five years as a senior system analyst before I even did this shit for real. I knew what it was like to be the only black dude in a room. I went to a, 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 a predominantly white liberal arts college, 2,000 students, 200 black students. Do you know what I mean? I knew what it was like. I knew how to navigate it. Now, granted, college prepared me, and which is why I, I went to that college, because granted, I grew up in, went to predominantly black high schools, predominantly black. Like my neighborhood now is like 95, 99% black. The other 5% is probably white and Mexican. I know what it's like to wake up every day and not see white people, not think nothing about it. But then I went to college, it was the opposite. It was like you beat in the class and they'd be like, so what, what do black people think about this, Al? You'd be like, why y'all looking at me? Like, <laughs> oh shit, I'm the only motherfucking <laughs> Oh shit, that's why y'all looking at me. I'm not used to this. <laughs> why you asking me? I don't know what black people think about this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know what I think about this shit. You know. And now you got to speak for everybody. Yeah, it's different. It's different. It was like, oh, the first week of college? Now that was shock. That was straight up shock. Like the first week of college was the first time I ever sat at a desk and like legit looked down at my skin and was like, oh. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> right. I was like, oh. This <laughs> is some other shit. I don't know if I'm ready for this. This is different. So by the time I got to underground rap, it was more like an extension of what I saw in corporate America, what I saw in college. And so I think that's why I never got pissed off about it. I just accepted it for what the fuck it was. But there are definitely, there's definitely some things you got to come to terms with. You know what I mean? I think it's tricky, right? Because when you think when you think of corporate America, even when you think of public education or, or you know, college, those two entities aren't generally thought of as culturally black. You know, where hip hop traditionally, even though it was a young genre, was so. It feels a little trickier for it to feel corporate in a space that was very black. So I, I imagine it was it was uh, like when you say you, there were things you had to come to terms with. I'm sure that that was that was part of it, right? Yeah, that's part of it, definitely. Like because you're like, is this what hip hop is gonna be? I mean, and then you know you know for a fact that there are certain fans. So like. Dibs and them would tell me about what just dudes would come up to them and be like, yeah, man, thanks for you know, holding it down for the white boys. You know what I'm saying? Would say that shit to them. Wow. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And uh, sometimes they would get pissed off about that shit. 
Like, nah, man, that's not why we doing this shit. We ain't trying to, we just trying to be dope. They would be like, nah, fuck you, you know? But I always looked at it like, there's going to always be something that the fans who are there for that will never fuck with me for. So like, the more you, you have a genre or a period of time where the predominant faces of it are white, the more likely it is that you're going to have people who come there for that reason. Not just the music. They're like, yeah, not just the music. And I'm not saying everybody is, but you're going to have a, a segment of that crowd who's just like, I just want to see some white boys be dope for once. And you can't fight that shit. Like if you, you can't beat it, you can't fight it, you got to accept it because the moment you start getting pissed off about that, that's the moment when you get bitter and jaded and it pisses you off to even be in those fucking environments. And so I accept it early on that there's going to be certain people who don't fuck with me because they don't come here to see a black man kill shit. There's, there's, there's people in the crowd, they just come to see some dope shit. But you got some people who come here specifically like, yo, this is when I get to get my white rapper fix. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they wasn't makes... getting it on, on MTV and BET. Unless, no, you no, know, no. Other than Eminem. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> they come there for that. And so when they see me, this is gonna be, it's going to be a lot of this. Damn. <laughs> Hurry up right. so he gets his white boy shit. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. I mean, I see I see remnants of it to this day. Uh and and you know, when I have done shows with, you know, an, an atmosphere or an Aesop rock, and you know, these are people who don't encourage anything like that at all. But you do still see remnants of them little pockets of people who's like, ah, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't yeah. sign up for your ethnic diversity <laughs> seminar. Like, I'm not here for that. <laughs> no. Oh, you're man. like, look, we know y'all can rap. Let the white boy get some. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to move into talking about your pod. When I started Stony Island Audio uh, with my partner Jason, who passed away, rest in peace, Jason. Rest in peace. You know, you were the first show I brought to him, even before I had started what had happened was, you know, you, you were the first show. Because I'm like, I'm like, man, I love what Blueprint and the Logic are doing, not only because it's very focused, like it's a show. Like, it's not just like, oh, we're going to sit around and say whatever the fuck comes <laughs> to our heads. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a, yeah. a, a focused, directed show. But it also, especially in, in the time that y'all have been doing it, for the time that y'all started, so high quality, like it's produced, it sounds good, there's bricks, there's good quality microphones, like <laughs> the stuff that, you know, you kind of take for granted, but like it does so much to set y'all apart uh, from a lot of, of what was going on in, in, um, in hip hop podcasting at the time. So I very much brought y'all to the table first and was like, yo, I definitely want to, you know, work with them. I think it's amazing just for you to be who you are and have had the experiences you've had and being in rap music, which is one of the most honestly ego-driven exploits that you can possibly do in life is to be a <laughs> yeah. solo rapper. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. And in, in such an, an, an ego-driven uh, landscape, what was it that made you want to give wisdom to other creators rather than hoard it, which is what the ego would usually do? Uh, you know, I think it was just realizing early on, like, 
years before we started the podcast, people would ask me, you need to do a podcast. You should do a podcast. And I was always like, man, I don't got nothing to talk about. Mm. And I think I felt like I would have to always talk about myself. Like you're saying that ego thing, like, of, like oh, I do a podcast and I talk about me every week. I thought that was whack. I was like, I don't want to do that shit. Like, listen to my records if you want to hear me on some me shit, you know? And I was like, if I do it, I realize it in myself that I'm more likely to speak about myself in terms of experience to help others. I'm okay with, I just don't want it to be a blueprint, blueprint, blueprint. I was like, well, maybe we need to help artists. And I started thinking about like what I struggled with when I was starting out. And the biggest issue I had about that era we started in was nobody would help nobody. And still, for the most part, it's very much like that. You know, it's so hard to, I tell people all the time, quick sidebar, I tell people all the time, the most important thing that ever happened to me in terms of having a career was me embedding myself in Project Blow, not for the craft part, not for the skill part, but for the business part. Because my OGs, you know, AC Alone, Abru, Bus Driver, they taught me about the business slowly but surely because I was willing to learn. So I was able to like be an apprentice, you know, like I would go to their shows and sell merch. And then, you know, I would be in the office while they're calling different retailers and placing records. So I would figure out how to do that and like take stock and count and, and all of this, this stuff that, that it really took for you to have a realistic idea in your mind of how to make a career of this. But for the most part, like you said, it's not, that's not how people act. No, not at all. And, and I would notice that when I would be at shows and I'd chop it up with artists and they would ask me something, like, yeah, that's how you do it. And they would be like, damn, you really going to help me like that? I'm like, why not? Like, I, I hate the fact that no one wanted to tell me how to do this shit when I started. Like, no one wanted to tell me what records were good records. Producers were worse than that. No one to tell me where to shop, how to dig, how to chop samples. Like, people would get offended if you asked them about some drums back then or how to, how to get this sound or how to get that, or what machine they used to make a beat. And I was like, yo, that shit was whack. Like, it, what it allowed people to do is like, they, ha they got to use like exclusivity as they, they were basically, they were successful because they had some exclusive shit, not because they were the dopest all the time. Right. Just because didn't nobody else know how to do whatever it was they were doing. Yeah, it's bullshit. And I'm like, yo, this era now, tell people what the fuck is going on. So the sooner people know what the fuck is going on, then they can compete on whether they're actually good or not. We'll know who's who when all the information is out there. And so I try to just help motherfuckers. It makes me feel, it inspires me to do it every week because it's like, yo... Literally every week, I'm doing something different that might inspire a different episode, and I realize it's easier for me to draw from these things than to try to come up with something that's about me. So I'm like, man, why don't we help artists? And I felt like that was the easiest path. I was like, I don't, I, at the time, I was like, I don't know if I'll ever make money podcasting just because I'll have to talk about current events in hip hop. And I was like, I don't want to do that shit. I don't want to be, you know, on some gossipy shit. I was like, I want to do something where there's a different path. And I was like, maybe the path is helping artists. Maybe I'll be writing books. This was years ago, five years ago. I was like, if we got on this path where we help artists, maybe I'll write some books or, or do some shit like that or coach and consult. And that's the path that we went on. And that's the path that I think really helped us stand out. And so as we, when we first started doing it, people were a little weird about it. But the more we did it, now our audience really, really looks forward to it and respects it. What's the biggest benefit of it? For you, or if there are any, for you as a creator sharing wisdom, does it bring in you something to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They say you never, 
if you want to learn something, learn how to teach it. That's what it's given me. So the fact that we talk about these topics every week, it actually helps me primarily more than people know just listening to it. I think about problems that I'm facing or other artists face, and I force myself to sit down and and put myself into solution mode. Right. Every week, here's how you handle it. Here's the factors. Here's how you get past it. So I, I was sharing it with the audience, but it had to be done for me first. You had to do it internally before you presented. So you're working through problems actively every week. Yes. Wow. So, so it's been a gift to me because it's made me more efficient. It's made me take my, my time more seriously. It's made me look at my problems, not as like specific to blueprint problems. Like, oh, blueprint, you're the only person got to deal with this shit. It's like, nah, man. You do certain topics on here, and I find out very early, like, yo, the feedback lets me know there's a lot of pain points that artists have that we talk about, and that's why it resonates. But it starts with like me being willing to be like open and honest with myself about like solving these things as I go through them. I'm curious if there's any boundaries with you and the logic of what y'all will or won't say on the show. Cause so I know sometimes y'all do album reviews and artist critiques. <laughs> yeah. And and that can put you in an awkward position you because sometimes know. you might be talking about somebody you know. Yes. And I'm wondering, like, what are the boundaries like? What is that like when you navigate it? We do have rules for, like, speaking on music. And the, the rules for that is more like, you know, you can't say nothing nice. Try not to say nothing at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, That's a smart one. Yeah. That's we, a smart one. We say more by not reviewing certain albums than we do by right. reviewing them. You know what I mean? Like, if we that's ain't reviewing real. it, it's because we, we don't want to say nothing that's... Get us in trouble. You That's know? real. And that kind of goes back to what you were speaking about earlier with the accepting the fame thing. See? Yeah. In the past, exactly. I would just say what the fuck I felt. I'm like, I can't be a fan too, you know? And right. then I realized like, no, the rules are different for you. They are. They are. You have a platform. You have a career. You have, you know, social media numbers where there's a freedom of anonymity, a freedom of just being somebody who's a consumer that you yeah. no longer have. Yeah. I know right? why KD got the burner count now. I, I get it. <laughs> oh man, one of my favorite things in in, in internet, um, in, in in social media, in the social media world, is that black people call them burners and white people call them sock puppets. Sock puppets. I never that's, that that's amazing. Yeah, they call them sock puppet accounts. Sock puppet like that. Account. That I love that. That's funny that too. you know, like these these sorts of phenomenons happen and they get defined different ways. Like sock that's puppet accounts. Sock puppets. What the fuck? How the hell they get? It? I mean, I get it, but this is hilarious. Like, yeah, it right? is. Hey, this is me. <laughs> KD, this is but, not really me. Right. right. Hey, what do you um, think? Al Al hates that. Hey, I didn't say that. <laughs> Quiet. Sock puppet. Yeah, yeah. I see why people do because they want to. They want to express themselves honestly, they and they can't. They do. They can't. They do. And 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 I think you know. For sometimes, when I think about social media too, I wish that there was like some like we had a different designation for some things that we put out there because some things aren't like we're not always in our right minds. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. And sometimes we just got to get a thought off that's insane yes. like get a yes. thought like cuz and i and i think it's because of the uniqueness of where we end up because of these creative risks that we take you know like sometimes you might get a thought that like yo all of my followers aren't going to understand this but i need to say this i need to get this out of me so i'm not sitting here chewing on it you know and i wish that there was another distinction that we could make on our accounts for like no this is this is so I won't lose my mind. This is not to be taken the same as everything else. Yeah. And know? it's not for debate. 
It's not. That's the thing. It's like, <laughs> it's not. I don't need you to qualify it. I don't need you to add no sauce to this shit. To flipping to say, no, I don't need you to point out no exceptions. That's just real. shut the fuck up and let this shit cook. This is let, it. Let it, right. Let it, let it live. <laughs> yeah. Just let it live. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's kind of like the songwriting process though. Mm. Right? Like, isn't the songwriting process very similar where we just have all these crazy shit that pop in our mind? It's like, we have to sift through them, write them down. Decide if they're worth keeping. I just, exactly. It, it plays out on social media very much like that. But people don't know. That's why we, we're misunderstood. We don't need feedback on everything we fucking write. Or, or, or It's like, yo, I just needed to say that shit. Right. The end. Move on. I'll talk about something next week. <laughs> right. Right. There's, there's a tweet directly underneath this. Right. Keep going. You know, if you, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> just keep it pushing. Yeah. That's funny. We're wrapping up here, but you know, one thing that I felt like, you know, I could really get into it with you on and wanted to really get your your mind on was this topic of accessibility. I've heard y'all on a pod talk about the power of having mystique, you know, especially when it came to Doom. Like I I heard, you know, y'all really kind of laid it out. And it's so smart. And I always think about that too, how these days, especially, the, the currency that comes with creating a mystique is like immeasurable. But I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't take that path. You know what no, I'm saying? No. You didn't take that path. So oftentimes, I end up feeling too accessible as an artist. And I, and I, you know, just from listening to y'all's pod, I'm sure you've had that feeling too. And I, as we wrap up, I'm curious in how you deal with that. Man, I take a lot of breaks. You know, uh, but I, I feel the same way as you. It's like, man, there's times I look back at my career like, man, I wish I had some of that anonymity. You know, I was talking to one of my guys this week and we were talking about early in my career. And I was like, I didn't put my picture on my first four or five records because I thought I was going to be like this enigma. You know, the first, I was never on none of the Soul Position records. I've never on none of the, my solo record, none of my pictures until 2011, but even drawings and shit. And I remember the first few years, motherfuckers didn't know who the fuck I was. And it was so cool. It was like, damn, your blueprint? I thought you was white. You know, people had no wow. fucking idea. <laughs> no idea. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not. It's me. You know? <laughs> but uh, I look back at that. And it makes me feel good about like, yo, everything ain't for everyone. We have to accept as part of this job is being accessible, being a public figure. There's certain things you can't change. You're gonna, you're not gonna be able to say what everybody else say. You're not gonna be able to move like everybody else move. People are gonna expect more from you. You know, it's the price of it. And because you have to conduct yourself so differently in your public life, you're allowed to take some private time for you whenever the fuck you want it. That's my philosophy. It's like, That's yo. Real. You give, you show, you share as much as possible. But when you don't feel like it, get the fuck off of there. Take some time off. You ain't got to post nothing every day on Instagram. My, I, I post now, I post because I got a book coming out. Prior to that, I had maybe two posts in a month or two. Didn't miss it. Didn't care. And I think it was needed to have balance from that accessibility. It's like you, you don't want to be too accessible you you read about all these fucking youtubers going crazy losing their minds from the 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 rat race of making and uploading content every fucking day it's stressful i don't think the human mind is built for that we're doing some shit that's new 
We're not. We're not. Su- we're not supposed to be this interconnected globally. We certainly haven't allowed ourselves to adapt at all for it. We've taken a brain that we just started learning how to read, right. you know, a few thousand years ago, <laughs> and now suddenly we're engaging with technology yeah, and each exactly. other in in unforeseen ways every day, and it's only increasing. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that, like, to use an analogy here, that like. Professor X only uses his cerebro every now and then. He don't put, he's not tapped into everybody's consciousness all the time. But that's what social media is. Anytime you're reading these timelines, you're basically like Professor X in the cerebro. It's nothing but other people's emotions, thoughts. You're subjecting yourself to that. We're not designed for that. He can't keep that shit on. We shouldn't keep it on. Put it on a tap into the collective consciousness. Take that shit off. Reflect. That's real. Wow, that's wisdom. Uh, I'm a, and I'm gonna say this too because I read a lot of I read X Men comics now, and I'm sure when I post this episode, somebody's gonna say this. So I'm saying now <laughs> that in the current X Men, yeah. he's rocking the helmet 24 seven. What's wrong with him? But it's exactly that's he's acting weird too. See, <laughs> so exactly, so it, it feeds right in. I just didn't want I didn't I didn't I want to say it now. So that, yeah, yeah, I haven't read one in a while. So forgive me, X. You know, current readers of X Men. You know. <laughs> it's good right now too. You should check it out. But. Uh, other than that, man, people should also be checking out your podcast, checking out your books, checking out all of your music. I'm sure um, a big portion of people listening to this now already do, but we want to give them more reminders. I think that everything you're doing is is wise and helpful and from like the greatest place. And it's really uh, inspiring to see somebody do that when it's so easy to do the opposite. Thank so uh, salute to you for that. And if there's anything, I don't know if, if you want to shout anything out in particular, but feel free. Uh, just if anybody wants to find out more with me, just go to waitlist.net. That's it. Books, albums, vinyl, you know, support, or just listen to the podcast. You know, super duty tough work. If you're a creative of any type, you know, the shit we talk about applies to pretty much any any occupation. So tune in. I think you'll find it helpful. And uh, you know, check us out and keep supporting, you know. Yeah. Just even me personally, I find it helpful every week. So that that's that's facts. So uh, check it out, and it's a it's a um, a proud part, and and the pride on my end of Stony Island Audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell them to get with you know they roll with the squad, man. If they tired of these other podcast networks, <laughs> all up in your videos. Any artists out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star, don't want to don't have to worry about these other podcast networks. All in the videos, all on the record. Come on over to Stony Island. <laughs> Yeah, man, I laughed so hard when y'all said that shit. I laughed so hard. That's hilarious. I appreciate you and your time, brother, and, and we'll talk soon. Hell yeah. Thanks, man. Appreciate you.